I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags-to-riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires, many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school, and with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. We are so excited today, Q. I'm so excited about today. Uh, we've got a, a guy that I've grown to be a, a good friend within a very short m- amount of time. I've become a very good friend with my uh, with Roberto, and uh, uh, I'm so excited to get his story out here. You know, are, are you ready for this, man? Are you totally ready? I am strapped in, ready to go. Just like the Tesla that you have that goes 2.4. Zero to 60, yeah. Yeah, man. So, But this right here is going to take our uh, listeners' mindset to the exact same 2.4 speed. 2.4 yeah. seconds to <laughs> 60. I'm excited hey. about this one. This yeah. is good. So, so again, I, I'm going to open it up and say here, I, I'm again, I'm so blessed to, to be to be this nutty uh, networking guy that I am because I fall into amazing relationships with with giving, loving people, and this is this guy's an, one of, an example of that. But I'll, I'm going to tell a quick story. I, I I didn't know anything about Doc until uh, I, I was I, I sat down un uh, un uh, uh, invitedly. I sat down next to Laura Ingram and her and Ray, her sidekick. Right? Um, she was at a, she was speaking at Turning Point USA, where I, my heart is really involved in Turning Point USA, as um, as you guys know. And and, uh-huh. and and she was relaxing with her with her sidekick Ray at a nice uh, restaurant bar area. And I saw her there. So she, what do I do? I, just, I sit down next to him, right? Hey, they, they got to know who I am, right? <laughs> Somehow. And so so I sit down next to him. And boy, you know, Laura and Ray were, Laura, Laura is something else. I mean, she is such an amazing person. I, I And I, I, you know, just listening to her on, on TV, I, I liked a lot of her. But boy, sitting next to her, she's so compassionate and she's so doggone sharp. And she does not hold back. She says exactly what's on her mind. I love that about pe- you know people that, that just say what's on what's on their mind. But uh, so we got telling our stories, right? Her story and mm-hmm. her do- adopting kids and Ray's story and family and, and my story. And I, I I I always tell people that I meet about my wife's uh, brain cancer because I, I know there's there's people thinking differently out there, and I want to I want to expose this challenge that we have to every every opportunity possible. And so when I when I tell this, when I tell people about who I am and, and this amazing wife I have. Um, I, I mentioned the brain cancer because I, I, I want to know if there's any else out there, right? So sure enough, I, I, I mentioned it to Laura and Ray, and Laura says, Laura says, you've got to meet my friend 
Dr. Roberto. She says, she says, Gary, I, I, I sympathize with you because I've got a friend of mine that, that, uh, that passed away of brain cancer who I loved, and doctor did some amazing things for him. And so you got to meet him um, because Cheryl, you know, Cheryl would love to meet him as well. And, and so sure enough, that's how it started. And, and she made a call to Doc, and boy, he got back to her, and, and, and we started a conversation that lasted a couple hours on the phone shortly after that, and, and soon after, Doc is, is uh, looking to try and fly out to Chicagoland area to meet Cheryl and I. Cheryl mostly. He, 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 found, he found out he, he wasn't, it wasn't that exciting to meet me, but to meet Cheryl was, was awesome. And so he did. And, and we got to be good friends. And since then, uh, have, have gotten a little closer to Doc. And it's been a, it's been a blessing for me um, to be this big mouth networking guy that gets to meet great people. I've, this is another one of those examples. So, Doc, uh, welcome to Ditch Digger CEO. And uh, we're uh, excited to hear, tell your story and, and, uh, and dive deep and, and let America know the, 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 the fun you're having and, and, and what happens to people that, that uh, really are passionate about what they do. So welcome. Yes. Oh, thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and the people that you connected. So I think this is a fantastic uh, program that you have. And and that network reminds me about how our own brain works, always with synapses. And synapses makes the connections and brings information. Mm-hmm. And that is very powerful for growing. And so this is a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and uh, Doc, we, we like to start with uh, your story, right? your, where you grew Perfect. up, um, your parents and the, the surroundings you had, and <clears throat> how, this, how your young mind developed into, into this character, awesome character that you are today. So can you start, yes. start from there? Yes. Yes, well, my name is uh, I am Roberto Trujillo. I always love to say I'm a Mexican-American. I had the privilege to have these two beautiful words that I was born in Mexico. I, I grew up in the United States and become a, a, this beautiful state of mind, being an American. And uh, so I, I think uh, when I talk about my life, is the uh, so I, I am the oldest of three brothers. Uh, my youngest brother passed away a few years ago, so we only have two brothers mm. left that I have. So uh, my mom is, uh, so I, I, I was born by accident in Mexico City. My parents, they both come from the small village. And so then they met in Mexico City, they stayed there. And a few years, five years later, I moved to the small village, a small town that didn't have a, so kind of has been an adventure for me because it was, um, <laughs> Uh, my mother is one of the person who actually I, perhaps I admire the most. She's my, my role model because uh, even though she didn't go to school, she only went to one year elementary school. Wow. And my father went to, um, to six year elementary school and mm-hmm. that's the whole education. Wow. So, uh, so I know when people ask me, how come this small little uh, village boy went to Harvard University and become now the chairman and the CEO of Neurocetonics, the new corporation that we try to change the world mm-hmm. to cure the incurable. So, and, uh, and I think I, I start because when I was, um, I was very young, I always believed that uh, sometimes at some point in our lives, we find our mission, the reason why we're here. Mm-hmm. And always I tell people, I think medicine never, uh, I never chose medicine, medicine chose me. <laughs> so when I, was, when I was three years old, I already learned how to read and write. And I think in that moment, my mother used to tell me that I wanted to be a doctor. So I started very early in schooling. So at the age of 16, basically, I, I began medical school in Mexico. So I was very young. 
And uh, <clears throat> so my parents coming from the small village, um, the, uh, so they, you know, went to the city and I find out when I was in the city, when I started my classes, one of the things happened at that time is that I couldn't get how to return home. There was no buses, nothing. Huh. So then I was like, oh my goodness, how can I do this? So anyway, so I, I, I uh, for serendipity in life, uh, one of my cousins got an accident. I went to see him in that city and the doctors were taking care of them. When I was in college, they were my professors. So I, I asked them that I am already medical student that I would love to be a voluntary in that hospital. I, if I can do as soon as I finish my classes, I can go back and start, you know, learning to do something. But, you know, but the other thing didn't people didn't know that I didn't have a house to live. Oh, so man. then that place became my house. So for that year, I lived for five years in that hospital. So you can imagine for a, a 16 year old kid, he was like in heaven, seeing all these patients, having wow. so much learning from experience. And in fact, I, I did, uh, I mean, it, it, of course, this is teaching hospitals where they are supervising by uh, residents and, and directors, but still you have a lot of chance to get exposed to medicine. And, and so because it happened also, I don't sleep too much. I only sleep four <laughs> hours in a day. So for me, it was uh, I could work a lot of things. So so I start to do my deliver the first baby when I was sixteen, the mm. seventeen years old. I did my first C-section. What? And because <laughs> so because I was the I basically kind of like uh, in the practice. I basically specialize in three different fields in obstetric and gynecology and anesthesia and general surgery, and I did a lot of the procedures. So when I was 20, when I graduated, I already know so much medicine. And in fact, that's the reason in a private practice, I, I support myself to study because at the age 12, as you can see, my parents could not pay me for anything. So mm -hmm. I have to work in my own mm -hmm. for being, you know, for every day to see what is my next life and what is this. So I think Mexico at that time was one of the great resources for me to become very important to understand about the importance of seeing patients, the importance for my compassion for the people. And I realized a lot of things is how myself, if I can be better for the people is because I need to train much better. Mm -hmm. And so, but one thing and as being in the hospital, I have learned that the, um, the small books that, or journals that the hospital they have, they all were written in English. So actually, you know, can you imagine that my parents, they thought that the whole world, they only speak Spanish. Uh -huh. There was no other languages uh -huh. around the world. Sure. So they, they never exposed myself to my, my brothers and me to go to a school and to learn English. So, uh -huh. but then as soon as I knew that I have to learn English and I knew that United States is the most important country in the world for medical research. Mm -hmm. And so being so close to United States, so I, I was able to do a rotation in Texas as the first time. So I, I already learned um, how medicine gets practiced in medicine in the United States. And what, by the time um, you did a rotation in Texas, how old were you then? I was 18 years old. Mm. So I, I, uh, I saw, I saw uh, a, 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 one of the professors from professors that came to Texas, to Mexico, and I went to talk to them. I said, listen, can I, uh, my name is Roberto Trujillo. I am number one in the school. Can you, can I have a rotation? You know, remember in the 80s, 
there was no internet, no what, no, yeah. <laughs> no WhatsApp, no ningun, none of these technologies. Uh-huh. So anyway, they they asked me to come to the rotation. Can you can you, can, was, you can you tell us, Doc, about um, you know when you're 16 years old in a, in a, in a school in Mexico City? I think you said, is that right? It's in Mexico State. Mexico State. Okay, Mexico State. Okay, so that school you went to. How is it different than today when a 16-year-old first can get admitted to a school like that and actually start, you know, learning about medicine at that age? Because in America, that's not, that can't happen, right? So tell us about the difference in Mexico back then and America maybe today. Yes. So, so, so the, the way in Mexico, uh, well, normally what happened is the, the training in medical school is a little different. We have more the European tradition mm. that after you finish high school, you go directly to medical school for seven years. Mm. And then after you go seven years, then you do a residency training and do you do more extra years. So at the end, it's equal to the education in the United States. United States, you, you finish, you start in high school, college, four years, and then you go four more years for medical school. So mm. total is eight years. Yes. So the, the average students, when they don't miss any years, usually they begin at 19 years old. 18 years old, finish high school, yep. they begin medical school, and they go for seven years, six to seven years, depending on the program. Sure. My program was seven years, so that's how, but I was still two years younger than most of the people right. in Mexico. So, and especially, you know, I am not too old. I think I was getting my, uh, being a, uh, <laughs> changing all my, my mind and the changes. I, I am very small a person. So, uh, so you, you look like you're, so you look like I you're look like 12 like or 13 a, when you're 16. Exactly. That's correct. Believe <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> well, yeah. so, so I can, so I can, I, I have so many stories because when I was uh, in the operating room, you know, I have my mask and the people don't see me and I did this surgery and did that. So then after the patient saw me, who is this kid? <laughs> What's he do? What did he just do to me? Oh, why, exactly. Why deliver the baby? I said, how are you doing? Oh, my God, your voice is the same, but you're a kid. Well, the other thing, you, I got a kick out of you when we talked about this. So my, my son, Nick, who you, who you played golf with last weekend and I, I love so much, right? Uh, he, uh, he's a small guy. And he embraces his his size. He loves. It. He's five foot four, five foot five, and he embraces it. He loves the fact that he's that he's that tall. He's, he talks about all the advantages, right? And I and I love that he embraces who he is, right? Well, I mentioned to you about his size, and you said, "What you tell me about what you said when it came to sleeping in the hospital? You could sleep anywhere, right? In a chair or whatever, whatever right?" Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so no, yeah. Tell me about the, the, yeah. the advantages you had as a young kid in that hospital, and and and, and you know. Yeah, so 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 I think that that was fantastic during that time because the, uh, you know, so I so one of the things is like was mentioned to you that I don't sleep as much. Mm-hmm. So when the residents or the interns they were so tired, so I used to come. I said, can you please teach me how to do it? And I do it. You go to sleep. I will take care of the patient. <laughs> or is any the note I need to write the, how the record is located? Let, let me write it for you. I will do it. Just teach me. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like I was this little sponge that. I just wanted to learn everything about medicine. Right. But one one of the things I, I uh, two things very important for me is that the uh, I uh, <clears throat> so in the first year um, I started medical school. One of the residents had trained in a U.S. Uh, program in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So he has over forty books, and he was living. He became an orthopedics uh, uh, specialized. So uh, he said to me, Roberto, you know, I cannot take all my books. 
I would like to sell it to you. I mean, he was more symbolic selling to me. And they said, the only problem is that um, they are in English. They're not in Spanish. They go, okay, that's fine with me. So I, I inherit 40 books in the first year of medical school. Mm. Wow. And all what I have to do is go to the store, get an English-Spanish translation a, a dictionary. And uh, <clears throat> so then I, 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 I have my reading. Uh, all what about medicine in English mm. and somehow destiny it is because I knew that I would be living in the United States. I oh. just knew that it was in my heart. So but in a way, kind of interesting because I even my books that I read, even though it was in a Spanish program, everything I was writing in English, everything that I couldn't speak, obviously. So I, I only learned English when I was 20 years old. Wow. So uh, so then uh, so so that that what happened. And um the other nice story that happened to me that time is that when I was invited to come to Baylor College of Medicine for the first time as an exchange student, mm -hmm. uh, so they accepted me actually, but then there was no scholarship. So here is another uh, uh, situation, a challenge. Yeah. But one of the things for me, it always challenges for me, there was, is I always I said to people, people, listen, challenges are basically opportunities for you to grow. Absolutely. And so because my life was, since I was 12 years old, I have to work in many jobs, many things to support myself, went to school, to pay scholarships, to pay all these things, plus uh, some scholarships that was given to me. Uh, it was great. So, um, but anyway, so I, 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 um, so I have my letter. So I went to see my president of the university and I said, listen, I've been accepted as in the first time in the history of my school to come to United States, so can you help me with any scholarships? He says, well, I will give you a ticket. So, and, uh, and then, you know, it's always good to do, because for me, uh, uh, scores in, in schooling was never important to me. Always I found that you should know or you don't know. Hmm. So for me, so always I scored basically, all my life I was number one in my school. My mom used to used to have that. Always she has diplomas, number one, number one, number one. But <laughs> when I was telling her the importance, this is important because when you are the number one in your class, you receive a lot of awards for that. They open opportunities for scholarships, especially mm -hmm. when you don't have too much money. Anyway, so so I, I have my tickets, but so I said to the president, can you please, because I knew that the presidents of universities, they know to the governors of the states. So yes. I asked them, can you give me a letter of recommendation to see the governor? Because I want to ask for the same, the next scholarship. So I, I went to see the, with my letter to the governor. I say, hey, listen. So governor, course, governor I, of Texas at the time? They, no, that was the governor of my state in Mexico. Oh, Mexico. Okay. Yeah, because I was coming for the first time to Texas. Okay, so you need a recommendation. So then, uh, exactly. So I, I have came to, to Texas and, uh, oh, uh, my, I went to see my governor of the state of Mexico, yeah. and I told, of course, he didn't um, receive me, but he sent me to his secretary of education, and I had the opportunity to have an interview, and I explained the situation, why it's so important that I need to open new ways, because for 
improve the medicine even in Mexico, if we have more people to be trained, mm -hmm. you and the, especially the United States is the, the number one in the world of medicine, it will be better for us. So mm -hmm. I can open the doors for more exchange and I can have more mentors in the United States to train us. Sure. So I only asking you for this. In fact, I also for two hundred dollars and he actually gave me like six hundred dollars scholarship for being five weeks in Texas. Wow. I was so happy with that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so that that is part of what I, I see as a. That's always I, I find that, um, you know, then, of course, when as soon as I finished medical school, I came to United States. Mm. Um, one part that of my life that I really, really always has been in my mind is and I really kind of love this area of medicine. All part of medicine is fantastic. But my inclination, my passion in medicine is to study the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why is because I remember in my first classes, in medical school, they had told me that once the brain is damaged, there is no repair. And always I ask, why? Why? All the organs can repair it somehow, but why the brain is not? And they say, it's the dogma. That's it. There's no more to say. And so I say, one day, I'm going to make the difference. I have to do the difference. So when I went through medicine, through all these 14 departments, I learned so much about medicine. Oh, and I did a lot of surgery. So my initial thought was I want to become a neurosurgeon. Mm. So, so I came to Baylor. Uh, I did my internship in medicine. I did in clinical neurology. And I, when I was there with this program, so I, I spent four years in Texas Medical Center. So I, I went to meet the chairman of the University of Texas, Dr. Philip Gildenberg, who was an MD-PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. So he was in Texas, and at that time we were in the AIDS epidemic. So we had to do a lot of surgery, a lot of uh, training. But there was always, you know, one thing in the brain. Sometimes, I mean, basically there is no cures for neurological problems. There is a few diseases you can control in the brain, but there is nothing really to do. Hmm. So, but then I, I did elective one year neurosurgical training, and I did a lot of surgery with him. And but I realized there was nothing really major thing I could do. It's so limited the medicine, especially surgical medicine in the brain. If you have access to a tumor, you can remove a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you cannot remove it completely, you cannot do anything. There are certain diseases, of course, the hemorrhage that have access to that, you can do it. But then, in general, there is no more that we can do. So I, I didn't see myself in 40 years of my life being a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. And then when I tried to do the neuropar, I already in my two years fellowship in clinical neurology, I basically learned so much about neurology. So it's like I would not be in a clinical neurologist either. So I, I was kind of a, in, a, in a process that, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I have a little crisis. But then uh, being in the United States and I realized how important it is to do the research. I said, if anything, I can help people. I have to become a researcher as well as medical, mm. as, uh, as an MD. And so that's the reason why I grow in my first time in my mind to be a PhD. Uh, so that's the next chapter of my life. So I, uh, so I got through the National Cancer Institute or the National Institutes of Health of the United States and a scholarship that was almost half million dollars to come to wow. Boston. 
And I came to Harvard and I is where I did my, my next chapter of my life, Boston, Massachusetts. So, uh, and so it was, um, so during the AIDS epidemic in the eighties, you know, uh, so I, I have thought that maybe if I studied the brain and I studied the, how a virus enters into the brain because AIDS virus causes so much damage in the brain. Hmm. And I wanted to become a, 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 a specialized in the brain and also in human biology to understand more of these bugs, mm -hmm. how they enter into our brain. Right. So, so, so I came to Harvard and I, I wanted to become a, a, a neurobiologist, but they say that specialty doesn't exist. Okay, I said, can I do two PhDs at Harvard? I want to become a neuroscientist and a human biologist. Said, no, you cannot do two PhDs at Harvard. Said, okay, so what can I do? Anyway, so uh, I think uh, what they suggested to me to train in the two fields. So I have this fantastic program with MIT, Harvard, and I became the first neuro molecular neurobiologist at Harvard. And that was a fantastic because all my mentors became my friends mm. and I create this network mm. that we can help to prevent diseases. And so Boston, that was another part of my life. I, I was um, uh, as a early faculty and my whole time was 15 years that I was in Massachusetts. It, so it was fantastic time for that. So, so Dr. Roberto, I, I you know, Man, you, you, you're saying some amazing things in here, and I think there's a whole embodiment of one of the, uh, I guess you can call it the success traits that I see in you. Well, two of them actually is desire and then going the extra mile. Like you have a desire to make things great. Like nothing can stop you. And, I, and also when it comes to business, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, they, they want to do something just to make a quick buck, but they don't have the desire to go that extra mile, so to speak. And it seems like you have that. And because of that, you've had some success in what you've done. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, when it comes to the people that you either um, mentor, the people you meet with, even the people that's in your business or even the people that you may see that may ask you questions, um, what are some components of desire or, or going the extra mile that you feel um, today's generation probably doesn't have or needs to be implemented into? Uh, uh, yes, I, I think this is a very, very important question when you ask me, because the, I, I think uh, always I have uh, said to the people, you know, one, one of the most important things is to have passion what you want to do. Without passion, without love, what you want to be, like I said, you know, if no one can pay you anything and if you want to do something that you want to, you know, wake up in the morning and that's the one thing you think about it and, and make it that happen. You know, this is, I think, is a very, very important thing is the number, the number one is passion. The second thing I think is important is the training. And I think sometimes, oftentimes, we have to be very careful because the study is not everything. In fact, a study is just one component to get the skills. And, and, and in my business, it's medicine and science. So you have to go to the MD, PhD in order to understand our business. And so uh, to have uh, education with purpose. And that, I think, is very important. And I really reflect in my life, and I feel this is so critical, that you need to be educated. But uh, like oftentimes, for example, my son, he is in the, you know, finished college, got a master's degree in business, and he says, Pop, 
I don't need to do a PhD to do business. Business you do by working. <laughs> Every day you have to do that. And business needs to be this part. And so the, the, that's, I think, is a very important, that only to be education with a purpose. And the last part, what is important, how can I, these ideas, this education, the skills that I bring to, to, my, to my brain, how can I help the people? And that's when the business comes along. You have to bring the product to society. And doing that, you do the business. And, and you know, when you don't even think about the business per se, but it, it's, it's a natural because when there is a problem, we require solutions. And solutions brings, you can invent a medical device, you can have a new medicine or a new thing, and that you have to do as a business. And because, I mean, I, I respect everybody who likes only to stay in academia or in private practice. But when I see in the, all the gifts that God has given to me in life, you know, I found so important. That's why in the last eight years, I became more an enterprise in the biotechnology business because this is the only way we can deliver the fastest as we can our solutions to our, our population. And that's, for example, what Neurosatonics is doing right now. But as I think this is the three components. Number one, you have to have passion what you do. Second, you have to educate it with a purpose. Don't go extra if you don't need to. And of course, the last one is to bring the solution, go into the business, because that's the only way we can even improve our lives. But also, indirectly, you can get so many jobs to people. You've been training, and we have, I will explain to you some of the ideas that I have. How can we, in fact, we're going to, having a new opportunity in science, it brings more new specialties, new jobs, new 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 areas like that. So this is a very important district components in my in my personal opinion. That's awesome. So so when you, when you think about uh, the the, your what you've gone through right from academia to to um you know to, to entrepreneurship um what, what think about think about america and how america has has in in your opinion been a, been a, a force for the world to do good and 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 what you're experiencing now from 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 being a, a mexican-american coming here and that now Working in India, working in Mexico, and all the different places of the world that you're doing your your trials and all your work, Doc. You know, yeah. what what do you feel like? Uh, what's what's the advantage of America to the rest of the world, and why is it so important that we we remain this this great free enterprise engine? Yes, uh, I think Gary, this is a, a very important question because oftentimes my colleagues, American colleagues, who who know only the United States, uh, oftentimes they even complain about why we don't have too much money. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, you don't realize, you know, the only country in the world who has, for example, this fantastic program that the National Institutes of Health uh, organize, we have over, I think, over $39 billion every year. It supports a lot of academia, a lot of research, and this is uh, very important for bringing new young people into new ideas moving forward. Many, many countries, they don't have a program. Not even the whole Europe have programs like we have in the United States. This is number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and also, you know, oftentimes also the training, the postgraduate training is very, very strong in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it's the training, it's the support for that part. The one thing is still the United States, actually, it still is missing. But this is coming as a new a new world, is in the new field that you translate the science immediately to the public. Uh -huh. The reason I am saying uh -huh. that is the following. 
like when I was in Boston, the night over hundred percent of the research, less than five percent of the research really translate to the products immediately to society. And a lot of the academia is, which is very important. I am not saying it's not important because I was in academia. I published papers because our idea is that in future we find uh, solutions. But oftentimes you, you get stuck in academia, you work in grants and papers, mm-hmm. and you can be even decades. And yet the solutions can be very slow because there is no the purpose of doing that. Sure. But, but having the, the, the infrastructure of United States have of supporting the research, supporting the, um, the great centers in academia are very important. But what I think what United States also does in an amazing, amazing way is if you have an idea you want to do in business, people embrace, it's so easy to embrace that, that technology. In other countries in, that I experience I have in Europe, in Asia, in India, in Mexico, is very difficult. But, very but, difficult but how about the do. challenges though? You know, I know that you're, you're doing your research in India and next in Mexico. Right, and you're not doing it in, in in America. I mean, what holds you back from being able to do this research and and, and these trials in America, where you know you're, you're where, where this where, where these ideas are many of them coming from a great entrepreneur like yourself. Oh yeah, well, well the uh, that, that's a uh, um, uh, Gary. I think it's uh, this is a. Um, uh, another good question, but I think before you ask me this question, I think I need to make a, a, a statement because the uh, the new, uh, uh, you know, as the chairman of the Neurocytonics Corporation, what we have is a medical device that um, that doesn't give side effects and is a regeneration medical device that yeah. we uh, are making that happen. And this medical device, very unique, in this type has nothing in the world. Any other group has invented something like this. It was invented by a scientist in India, Dr. Mm-hmm. Raja Kumar. Okay. So Dr. Raja Kumar is from Bangalore, India, from the south of India. And so he had, I have met this fantastic genius five, six years ago. So when I met him, uh, he has this medical device. I have learned that through these frequencies without side effects, and it's an amazing technology, he can grow cells from the cartilage, from when, as we get older, we can have problems in our knees. So that cells from the cartilage, which is called chondrocytes, but that cells, after that cannot regrow. So he figured out the way that through a software system, and you go enter into this tunnel, and you, through, we, we measure exactly, given that frequency, it can grow the knees again, and the Whoa. people do not need That's surgery a, anymore. That's unreal. This is this is this is unreal. I mean, I, I was for for especially for my background, you know, and I spent also a few years in the National Institutes of Neurological Disorders and Stroke and NIH, and I work also part of the science in this three decades in academia. I have never seen something like this, and this is comes from the field of physics from biomedical engineering, and it's different from my background. So so happened, this is an invention unique because happened that that was in India, okay? Mm-hmm. So when when I ask the question, so can, in, okay, if you can do that with the knees, yes. can we do that with the brain? And so then we began that, with that question, I began the program to try to treat patients with Alzheimer's disease, with Parkinson's, with a stroke, with children with autism and children with cerebral palsy. And so because the technology happened to be in India, was not born in the United States, mm-hmm. 
And he started to do, we start to do like we call index studies, just the, the proof of concept mm -hmm. to see if this technology can work. And when I find out that it works, my first thing to has been in, uh, so I create this corporation in the United States and we have to do the, the, the whole ABC for, for medical devices. And when I say ABC, what means? That we need to get the approval by organizations in different countries and the one gold standard organizations in the world is the FDA. Mm -hmm. So the Food Drug Administration is the most rigorous organization, but once you have approved by this organization, you actually can go around Any, the world. Anywhere in the world after that. Anywhere in the world, exactly. So, so, so here it is. So, so I had this great idea. Uh, this is the most amazing, in my experience, cutting-edge science that can change the world, can change medicine. But also, you know, I, I know I, I, I raise money with family and friends, to begin this, but you know, it's very, very expensive mm -hmm. to do clinical trials. Yeah. Sometimes these medical devices can cost you even hundred million dollars to do a clinical trials. Mm -hmm. You know, in drugs and pharma, we have like uh, from pharma, you spend over $800 million from one medicine. Sure. So, so here I have a medical device and I try to do what would be the fastest way and I, how can I raise money to get this part? So. So having this, I, I, I raised a lot of money. In fact, last year, from 2016, when I have the organization to put in place, mm -hmm. and 2017, we make the company valued in $100 million. <laughs> and with that, I raised the money to begin the clinical trials. Wow. And so for me, it was kind of a little cheaper to do right now in Mexico, the clinical trials, but under the guidance of the United States FDA. Hmm. So yeah. the whole standards can do that. But so this is just the beginning because as we are t testing the clinical trials, but now this is just, almost I can say in the tip of the ice, the, the, that, tip of the iceberg, yeah. That. So, so, we'll, so uh, Roberto, um, yeah. so, so the company though that now is in, you're, you're in India doing doing trials, is, am I correct there? And then you're going to you're, now you're now in Mexico. That's all one company, Neuro Neurocytonics. Yes. So 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 the 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 Neurocytonics um, actually the way we established that is that Dr. Kumar has his organization. Yep. That is uh, his organization. So we joined the ventures that our organization can explore the commercialization around the world of for brain diseases. Okay. And so the corporation is a U.S. corporation. So okay. because I have to do clinical trials in Mexico and the future to also commercialize in Mexico, I create a subsidiary of Neurocytonics U.S. in Mexico. Mm. Now it's called Neurocytonics Mexico. Okay. But because now in India, there are a lot of interests that we already finished studies there, that we need to create Neurocytonics India. So that's sure. what actually working in that in that context. But but but, but, Gary, but one of the important thing for the business is that um, I think uh, we have to do our headquarters to do more clinical trials because I only start with the one, mm -hmm. uh, as, uh, children with cerebral palsy. But Alzheimer's is one of the major problems, and we already have evidence that we can help these 
these people with Alzheimer's disease. So we have to do the studies now in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I have to build the, the headquarters, the infrastructure, because this is just the beginning of something so big for the future. And the United States, as, as me as an American, I feel that being also a leader in the world, we have to take the lead in this in this kind of science Absolutely. of regeneration. And that's why I am right now, my plan is to work with United, you know, to, to build this infrastructure mm -hmm. for the future. Awesome. We're going we're gonna to help with that somehow, Q. You and I are going to go after that. We're going to help them out. We're <laughs> going to be, uh, you know, his, his advocates that uh, get the message out because I got a bigger mouth than he does. <laughs> you're, you're right there with me. You're not too far <laughs> off. Between the two of us, we're going to get the word out. <laughs> I'm serious about that too, but yeah. So, so when we say this, um, what, what? Uh, tell me about what the your clinic looks like in India, and what it looks like in Mexico, and what you vi envision in in America uh, yes. within the coming years. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so like in uh, the the well, the, the research that Dr. Kumar has is is a small one side clinical research center. Uh, and that's why we have a proof of concept because, you know, as a neuroscientist and, and, and a physician, I I have helped to, it's imagine, I always tell people, it's like uh, Dr. Kumar had invented the computer and I am helping him to do the software so that computer. Mm. So my training of all sciences and I know how we can do this. So basically this technology is a, is a technology that has a program that I always I tell also people, imagine it's also like a radio and you have different stations, FM, AM, FM, AM. Yeah. So different stations have different songs and different, and that's how we do different programs. So, so far I have created five programs. We created for Alzheimer's, for Parkinson's, for stroke patients, children with autism and children with cerebral palsy. So, so the India was only the proof of concept. That's it. So, what we what we have created in Mexico, I have uh, uh, with the university in Monterrey, Mexico, with mm -hmm. the, the third biggest university in Mexico in Monterrey. Uh, they have a building, University Autonomous of Nuevo León, and so we partners with them, and we build right now. We build over ten thousand square feet. We brought three machines. I train all the people, and we have people in the United States the, who regulates the science, the research science, and they're back and forth United States to Monterey. From, so from, that's from, it. From DC, DC, from to DC, from, okay. yeah, from yep. from DC, from different, you know, from we have like six people monitor the study in Mexico from the United States. Okay. And I have recently, I have new two new people from Miami, so they will be helping us from there. So it's a, this is a big collaboration yeah. about that and everything is now because of this of the uh, the technology we have everything you can access into the internet the platform that we develop for that so we are very monitored and very close to that but that's the the, the one research and, and one of the things is that we want to build the uh, eventually the take care of the machine you pay the patient one hour for 20 days but the vision for United States is is a little different because as this technology, imagine Gary, and this is the dogma that I learned when I was a 16 year old, and this is the dogma happening in medicine, that the organ that once is destroyed is the brain cannot repair. Mm -hmm. And now we're changing that question 
that we can repair actually. We can regrow neurons with no wow. medicines, no drugs, no vaccines, nothing, no surgery, no transplantation of any tissue, just sending messages to certain cells in the brain to regrow. And so for that, we have to do more understanding of the research, understanding all the, the signs that we know of our human uh, genome in the brain. Now we need to move it into this practical application. And so for that, we have to have a lot of database. Uh, and there is a fantastic new technology that we have to create it to bring it today. So that's why the United States should be the sources of the new future indications for treatment, many diseases, people with epilepsy, people with Lugaris disease, people with schizophrenia, bipolar. I mean, this is just the beginning, the beginning of something that is very different. Uh, I know we know uh, a lot of in the last century, we have made so much improvements of quality of life because of the discoveries in science. Sure. But when we question, there is many incurable diseases. And that's why I always said my mission is to cure the incurable. Okay, let, me, let, me, what, let, me, let me stop you there because I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that uh, that slogan. And, and, and you know, how old were you when, you when that was your vision? You know, that. that because I know you walked away from being a professor. You could have been a professor at Harvard, and you, you've been, right? You you've could have yes. been a great doctor, right? And your mother mother wanted, wanted you to come home to <laughs> oh, be the yeah. doctor, the village doctor. And she's not still not too happy about that, that you didn't go back and be the village doctor, right? So all these opportunities <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you pass by, because in your mind you somehow came up with this, your goal is to cure the incurable. But about how old were you when, they, when that got into your head and you can't think without thinking that? I mean, that's uh, awesome. It's an awesome thing. Uh, yeah. So I, I think, Gabriel, the, I think the, the moment when I decided, when I was 16 years old, that my passion is to study the brain and to make the difference. In fact, I thought one day I'm going to transplant the brain. That's what my idea was, transplant the new brain or something like this. Yeah, but I yeah. think uh, as, as every stage of my career. Wait a minute. You, you didn't in, give up on that idea either, though, did you? Transplant the brain? You, <laughs> I don't give up on that. Who, no. who knows? Who knows? You know, this is the beginning of something's in the future. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Ditch Digger CEO and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. became the CEO man We're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down Highway 31 Lord, I was called Ditch Digger Man Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans, then I became the CEO man.